And all God's people said amen. Amen, amen. Well, good morning, church. We are glad that you're here this morning. We have been in a series called Rebuild. And, we, you know, we think about Rebuild. We're in the story of Nehemiah. We're kind of walking through Nehemiah. And obviously, when Nehemiah is commissioned by the Lord to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, that's a big deal. Because to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem means, okay, now God's people have their place back. Their, their land is there. It's secure. It brings credibility. But hopefully what we are understanding as we go through this series is, it's not just about rebuilding a city. It's not just about rebuilding a temple. The whole goal of what Nehemiah is doing is to rebuild a mindset. Elijah mentioned a while ago, to rebuild a mindset, a mindset of who they were, a mindset of who they were called to be, and a mindset of why in the world that matters. So for example, if you think about Nehemiah, what is he trying to rebuild them? He's trying to rebuild a sense of identity that you belong to the holy God. You belong to the creator of the universe, and that matters. He's also trying to build this sense of you know, uh, what they're called to be. They have a purpose, and that's to be light and holy in a broken world. But then he's kind of challenged with what, what does it matter? It matters because we are surrounded by lostness, and we're to be a beacon of light and a beacon of hope to those around us. And so when we go through Nehemiah, it's not just about rebuilding walls, it's about rebuilding a mindset. Now hear me on this. It's the same thing for us. As we go through the book of Nehemiah, we're not rebuilding anything. We're not even building anything right now. But we do need to build a mindset in us, which is the most important is this, of who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ, our purpose in Christ, to be salt and light, and why in the world it matters? Because we are surrounded by people who don't know Christ, and we might be the only Jesus that they ever come in contact with. So as we go through this series, it's all about rebuilding the mindset of who we are, who we've been called to be, and why in the world that matters. Now, so we said that to rebuild, and this rebuilding process begins with realignment. If you go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, this whole building process begins with realignment. Nehemiah heard the, that the Jerusalem walls were destroyed. They heard that the temple was destroyed. And what was the first thing Nehemiah did? It said he wept and he grieved, right? He wept bitterly. He wept and he mourned. And then what did he do? He prayed. He prayed, right? He prayed. See, part of realignment, maybe the most important part, is prayer, because in praying, we're realigning our heart and our minds to God's heart and to God's mind. It's not us trying to change God's mind and his heart to align with us. When we pray, we're saying, God, take what I think and how I feel and what I desire, and I'm trading it in because, God, I want my heart to be in rhythm and to be in sync with what your heart is and what your mind is. And so if we're going to rebuild this mindset, it begins with realignment. And then last week we said, and not only do we need to realign ourselves, but also we need to respond to the opportunities that God puts in front of us. Remember that? And if Nehemiah, do you remember Nehemiah after four months of praying, right? Four months, you remember that, right? Four months of praying, the king begins to ask Nehemiah two questions. The first question was, why are you so sad? And Nehemiah's like, you know, paraphrase, duh, you know why I'm sad. My homeland is gone. It's ruined. And then the king asked a second question, which is the most important question that could have been asked. And it's basically, what are you requesting of me? And all of a sudden, four months of praying led to a divine moment that Nehemiah had. The king's basically asking, what do you want me to do for you? Now, in that moment, Nehemiah could have cowered away. Nehemiah could have said, you know what? You're the king. I, I, you don't care about my people. It seems insignificant. I'll just keep praying. Is that what Nehemiah did? No, Nehemiah seized the moment, didn't he? Nehemiah said, okay, if you're going to ask, here we go. I want to go back home. 
And not only do I want to go back home, I want you to write a letter for me so that when I go back home and I face opposition, those people look at me and go, okay, the king signed it. He can still go. And not only do I want to go back home, and not only do I want you to write a letter so that people, that I'll be protected, I also want you to write another letter to the guy that's the keeper of the force because we're going to need lumber, and I want that lumber donated. And I want to donate it, not just to rebuild the walls, not to just rebuild the gates, but I got a house I got to live in. I want that too. I mean, Nehemiah had this amazing request from the king. And he says, if it pleases the king, here's what I need from you. And if you read through the story, guess what? God had been working on the heart of the king and it pleased the king and Nehemiah began the journey back home. Listen to me. If we're going to rebuild a mindset of who we've been called to be and our purpose and why it matters, it begins with realigning our heart and minds to the Lord but it moves into the sense of we have to be willing to respond when God provides the opportunities. Now, I don't know about you, but I know about Doug. And they're sad to say in my life, too many times God has provided me great opportunities that I have not seized those moments. Can you resonate with that? Moments that I have let pass me by, and when they pass me by, I wish they could come back again. Never happened. And so I remember my, my, one of my grandmas, uh, when she passed away, I was, I don't know, I was probably in my 20s, and, and I, I had this thing in me because I was the preacher, right? And so like when we go out to eat, everybody wants the preacher to pray. We've talked about that. And so the preacher's the one that goes in and talks to everybody and prays with them. My grandma was not a hospice, but she was in the home of my aunt, and she was on her deathbed. And my grandma was one of those grandmas that if, if she could wear the shirt that said, I'm a Christian, but I cuss a little bit, you know, that's what I'm talking about. That was my grandma. But I wasn't really sure that my grandma was saved. I mean, she exemplified some things. So I was determined to go in there and have a conversation with my grandma. Grandma, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're going to spend eternity with Jesus? Do you, do you really know that? And you know what? God provided the perfect opportunity. And I passed. And that's sad. I passed. I know you can be disappointed in me. It's okay. I'm still disappointed in me, right? I passed. Now, what I didn't know is that my, some of the other people had gone in there, my family had actually had that conversation with her, and she didn't know that. But then when my dad's mom passed away, began to pass away, she was on hospice. Guess what? It wasn't going to pass the second time. I went in there, and I was like, I mean, she was actually more hard-nosed. I mean, my grandma swanked my dad's mom. She was tough. I mean, she was tough, tough. I mean, she was rough and tough. And so and I went in there, and with everything in me, I made sure I shared that story. Why? Because I didn't want the opportunity to pass in front of me. And here's my point. When we rebuild the mindset of who God has called us to be and our purpose in life, he's going to provide opportunities in front of us. And we have to have the courage, like Nehemiah, to respond, not retreat, right? Respond, not retreat. Now, if we're going to continue to be, rebuild this, this, this sense of who we are, the third thing we need to do is not only do we need to uh, uh, realign and not only do we need to uh, respond, we need to be willing to reinforce. We need to reinforce our purpose of who God has called us to be. So when you think about that, one thing I want you to notice is, what do you think is the greatest threat to purpose? What is the greatest threat for you and I living a life that's honoring and pleasing to the Lord? What's the greatest threat that, comes, that, that happens to us? And I would say, here's the greatest threat, opposition. The greatest threat for you and I being the kind of Christ followers that we are called to be is when we face opposition. You all know what I'm talking about, right? When something comes against us, it goes, you shouldn't be doing that. That's one of the greatest threats and the greatest hurdles of you and I being the kind of Christ followers that we're called to be is opposition. And here's what I was, as I was praying about today, I thought, here's something I think most of us buy into. Most of us have this notion going, okay, if I face opposition, God must not be in it, 
Right? You ever thought that before? If I face opposition, God must not be in it. And what I would say to you this morning is this. If God is in it, you will always face opposition. Are you with me on that this morning, church? Are you with me? Say amen. See, most of us live our lives going, okay, if I face opposition, then God must not be in it. And I would say, if God is in it, you will always face opposition. I remember when in 2000, uh, Sonia and I were moving from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, where her mom and daddy lived, and we were moving to the Midwest. We were moving to St. Louis, Missouri, and, and James, my oldest, was 18 months old, and Sonia was nine months pregnant. Not a brilliant idea on my part. Not a brilliant idea. So we move all the way to, to St. Louis, and we get there, and we lived in Tennessee in a, Rutherford County, and that county was the third fastest growing county in the United States at the time. Homes were staying on the market less than 48 hours is how fast it was growing. So we were living in that county, and so we were going to sell our house, and, and so we pack up, and we move just knowing the house is going to sell. Guess what? Ten months later, the house sold. So we get there and we're distraught. I'm kind of distraught. I'm 28 years old, 27 years old. So we get there and I'm a little bit distraught because I'm like, okay, God, I really feel like you was in this, but my house is not sold yet. You probably have gone through that before. And then I get there and I get kind of familiar with the staff members. And one of those was a pastor, super nice guy. And, and one day he and I are out having lunch and, and I begin to talk to my pastor. I said, hey, pastor. I said, uh, my wife went to a women's Bible study group that's at the church and she had a, a teacher and I called her by name and, and she said that I'm not sure that she ought to be teaching. And he goes, what do you mean, Doug? And I said, well, she was teaching this class and they were talking about creation. And she literally said that she did not believe that Adam and Eve were real. She literally said that she believed the creation story was an allegory. It's kind of a picture of the beginning of creation, not literal. And I'm going, she shouldn't be teaching, pastor. And he looked at me in the eyes and he goes, I don't disagree with that. So th to listen, my house hasn't sold and I've got a pastor, I'm thinking, that's, that's heretical. You know, so I'm like, well, okay, I, I'm facing this opposition. Is it possible that God's what? He's not in this. Maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I misheard God. So I did what Nehemiah did. I began to pray. Sonia, I began to pray. And within weeks, our household, and within two months, the pastor moved to Kentucky, and we got a new pastor. Now, I didn't pray him away, but I mean, God knew nothing. I didn't pray him away. I just prayed this, Lord, my heart does not resonate with his heart. I can't be an extension of that doctrine. You need to move him or you need to move me. Listen, here's my point. In that moment, as a 27-year-old, I felt like because I was facing opposition, maybe God wasn't in it. What I found out was because God was in it, I was going to face opposition. Are you, if you're with me, say amen to that. I think we all need to hear that this morning. So today, what I want to do, I want to look at the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4, and I want to look at the opposition they face. I want you to look at Nehemiah's crazy response, and then I want you to look at how the people responded in the face of that opposition. So if you have your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Now, I know some of you great students out there with your Nehemiah journals are going, he didn't talk about chapter 3. Are we skipping chapter 3? Uh, the answer is yes, we're going to skip chapter 3. Uh, so if you go back to chapter 3, it's, it's really important for chapter 3, but that's where they're rebuilding all the gates. If you read chapter 3, there are, there's all these gates that are being rebuilt, and the whole point of chapter 3, what I would have said is this, is that when we get to chapter 4, it's no longer about Nehemiah, a pipe dream of him going back and rebuilding the walls. It's in motion now. He's really back. He's really there. And the rebuilding process has started for them. Okay? So that was chapter 3. Then chapter 4, the first thing I want you to notice is the opposition they face. And there's really three kinds of opposition that Nehemiah and the Israelites face. The first one was verbal opposition. Look with me in chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Sanibalt heard that they were building the wall, 
he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Now, the first thing is, there's this guy named Sanibalt who's a ruler in the areas around Jerusalem, and he did not like the fact that the Israelites had come back to their homeland, and that they were going to rebuild not just the temple, but they were going to rebuild the walls. And it says that he jeered at them. Basically, that means he began to ridicule them. He began to ridicule them and talk down to them and tell them they couldn't do what they sought to do. It was verbal opposition. But look at the ridicule they faced. Look at me in verse 2. He kind of tells us here. Verse 2, and he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at, at that? In other words, he looks at them going, hey, he tries to demoralize them. I mean, his verbal opposition is trying to demoralize them. He's like, listen, you guys are weak, feeble, right? You're weak. Um, you're overambitious. Look how much rubble there is. You have lack of resources. You're incapable. Now, listen, I don't know about you, but here's what I believe. And you've heard me say this before. Words matter. Amen? Words matter. And if you say it long enough and loud enough, you start believing it, don't you? You know, if you say it long enough and loud enough, if you start pouring things into your kids long enough and loud enough, they start believing it. If you pour positive, they believe it. If you pour negative, they believe it. If you say it long enough and loud enough. And here's a guy who does not like the fact that Israel is building their armies, so he's ridiculing them, and he tries to verbally demoralize them. You guys can't do this. You guys can't do that. You are incapable of doing what you want to do. Listen, look at all the rubble around you. It is an impossible task. You guys are so weak and feeble, there's just no way you can do that verbally opposing them. But he doesn't just oppose them, trying to demoralize them. Look at verse 3. He says, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, listen to this, if a fox goes up on it, it will break down the stone of their wall. In other words, what you're building is so pathetic that if a fox who weighs nothing would lay a paw on the top of your wall, it would just come crumbling down. You have no skill set. In other words, they're trying to create doubt that you're trying to build this wall, and not only are you weak, not only are you feeble, not only are you inadequate, but you're trying to build this wall, and you're not even good at it. Whatever you're building, what I see here, it is so pathetic, no enemy is going to have any trouble fighting through this wall. Now think about it. Here's Israel. They're back. They've come out of captivity, and they're back, and they're rebuilding the wall. They are fulfilling the purpose that God has for them. And these other people who don't want them, their enemies, don't want them rebuilding the wall, come at them, and the first opposition they face is verbal opposition. You can't do that. You're not strong enough to do that. You're incapable to do that. You don't have enough skill set to do that. In fact, what you're building is so pathetic, it's not going to stand the test of time. Would that have been encouraging to you if you were Israel? Listen, you just came from captivity. Is it possible that you might begin to believe what they're saying? You ever had someone beat you down like that before in your life verbally? Come on, have you? Some of you got some scars, don't you? Don't you? That's not very encouraging, is it? But it wasn't just verbal opposition they faced. They also faced physical opposition. Look with me in verse 7 and 8. Skip down. It says, But when Sanibalt and Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, that breaches were beginning to be closed, that they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion 
in it. Listen, and when, the, when the verbal opposition didn't halt the project, now they tried the second kind of opposition, physical opposition. They got all the enemies together and say, listen, now we're going to fight them. They're, they're securing this wall. They're trying to build this wall. They're trying to maintain this wall to keep the enemies out. We are going to go fight them. Now listen, verbal opposition is very different than physical opposition. Verbal opposition can happen from a distance, right? You remember back in, I think it's 1 Samuel, when David is about to go fight Goliath and the Philistine Goliath comes out and they're just hurling insults to Israel, right? They're just hurling insults going, you know, you guys are weak and feeble and basically the same kind of stuff. And it wasn't until David decided to fight and then the giant Goliath comes out. See, it's one thing for Goliath to hurl insults, but when this giant stepped out into the battlefield, what do you think most of Israel wanted to do? Run, yeah, but not David, right? David's the one who fought the battle there. See, here's my point. When we face physical opposition, it's those moments that can cause us to doubt the will of God, right? In that moment, when Goliath stepped out, I'm sure all of Israel, including Saul, except David, goes, maybe we weren't supposed to fight the Philistines, right? Maybe that wasn't the battle we were supposed to be in. Here's my point. Sometimes we go through things in life. You know, I had a pastor friend of mine many, many years ago that felt like he wanted to lead his church a certain direction and do certain things, and he had his church on board, and things were going well, and there was this one person who'd been in this church for almost five decades, come up to him and said, listen to me, pastor, I hear what you want to do, and I don't like it. I don't like it, and I want you to know, when it goes before the church, I'm going to stand directly in opposition to you every time it comes up. He said, I'm going to physically oppose you. Now, he wasn't going to fight him, but every time it came up, I'm going to be a voice, and I'm going to physically oppose that I don't want to do this. Now, I'm just going to tell you, there's a lot of pastors that would have just gone, you know what? Maybe, maybe this is not the right thing to do, right? The point is, physical opposition sometimes calls us to question, is this really the will of God? And that's what they're facing here. It wasn't just verbal now. Now it's physical opposition. Now the enemy has risen up and ready to do battle with them. And there's a point where Israel's got to be thinking, okay, are we sure God is in this thing? But here's the worst opposition of all. It wasn't the verbal. It wasn't the physical. It was the internal opposition. Look with me in verse 10 through 12. In Judah, it was said, now the Israel, in other words, the Israelites are saying this, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. In other words, those who are passionate about rebuilding this wall, those of us that were once on fire for this, it's beginning to fail. And there is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said that they will know or see till uh, we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near, they came from all directions and said to us 10 times, underline that in your Bible, 10 times, you must return to us. Now, here's the internal opposition going on. They were frankly just overwhelmed. They go, you know what? There's just too much trouble. Too much trouble. Let me put it in context. Let's say we were to show up Sunday morning and Columbia Elementary was all one pile of rubble. And we said, all right, guys, here we go. Grab your work clothes, grab your work gloves. We're going to build this thing back up. There'd be a lot of us going, ah, just too much rubble. It's overwhelming to see the destruction I see is too overwhelming. I'm not sure it's possible. Would you agree that would be overwhelming if this place came tumbling down and we had walked up going, we got to rebuild this by 1030 today? That would be a big task, wouldn't it? 
And we would feel that way. These people, as they saw all that they were faced with, just forgetting the verbal opposition, forget the physical opposition, they were to place going internally, we're not sure we can do this. There's just too much rubble. They were discouraged. They're like, we can't rebuild this. But they also were distraught. They were so distraught that it took other Jewish people around them to come up 10 different times to go, we got to get back to work. Hey, we got to get back to work. Hey, we got to get back. I'm telling you, we got to get back to work. Hey, listen, forget what they're saying. We got to get back to work. I know the rubble's big. We got 10 different times, we got to get back to work. We got to get back to work. So it wasn't just this verbal opposition. It wasn't just the physical opposition. There was opposition among the Israelites in Jerusalem on that day, in Judea on that day. Now, when you read the story, can you understand how they might have been a little discouraged at this point? Can you understand that? Here's a people that have a calling. Go back, rebuild. That's exciting, isn't it? But when opposition comes, we're like, okay, there's a little opposition. They're hurling insults at us. That's not really good, but let's just keep going. Let's just keep going. Well, now they're going to physically oppose us. Okay, now, they're, now, they're, now there's a fight going to break out, right? So this is a little bit more intense than verbal opposition. And not only that, now we've got people in our own camp going, I don't think we can do this. You're fighting a never-winning battle at that point. And I want you to understand, that's exactly where Israel found themselves. They were being opposed verbally, physically, and internally. There was opposition going on. That's what was happening. That's the storyline. Then I want you to notice with me the crazy response of Nehemiah. Look what Nehemiah says in light of all that. Verse 13, he says this. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, an open place, and I stationed the people by their clans with the swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He said, listen, and, and forgetting all the opposition you're facing, let's fight for one another. Let's stand up for one another. Let's stand in the gap for each other. And remember, guess who we got on our side? Guess who's team Israel? Who's team Israel? God is, right? And if God is, as Patrick read a while ago, if God is for us, then what? Who could be against us? And so Nehemiah, in the face of this opposition, I can just see Nehemiah like the cheerleader in the corner just going, hey guys, forget that stuff. Let's just fight for one another, take care of one another, and remember that the God who is great, the God who delivered us and brought us out of captivity, the God who brought us back, he is the God who's fighting for us, and don't forget that. Don't miss that. Now the last thing I want you to notice with me this morning is this. What did God's people, what, what God's people did to face opposition? So when this opposition came internally, physical, his, uh, uh, the words they gave out, verbal, how did they respond? How did they face this opposition? Well, first thing they did was they prayed. Look at me in verse 4 through 6. After this verbal opposition came about, verse 4 says this, Hear, O God, our, our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to the plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from their sight, for they have provoked you to anger and the presence of the builders. In other words, they prayed. In the face of verbal opposition, what was the first thing they did? They prayed. Are you getting a theme through Nehemiah how much they prayed? Come on, are you getting that theme? So maybe that should be a theme for our lives. 
that we need to spend more time praying, that maybe as we talked about four weeks ago, that prayer is the most underutilized resource that we all have. And it's our opportunity to commune with our Heavenly Father, and maybe we need to pray a lot more. They prayed out of the gate. Now, here's a question that dawned on me as I was preparing. Why did they pray? Why did they pray? In this moment, after verbal opposition, why is the first thing they did? Why did they pray? Now, I don't see me saying, well, they wanted to get a word from the Lord. Yeah, sure they did. But why pray? And here's what I believe. I believe the reason they prayed was because of this. If God isn't in it, it's never going to happen. But if God is in it, you can't stop it. Are you with me on that? If God isn't in it, you can't make this happen no matter how hard you try. But if God is in it, nobody is going to stop it. And so they prayed. And what did they pray for? First of all, they prayed for help. Lord, take all this verbal abuse they're giving us, pour it back on their heads. You ever prayed that one against somebody? Come on, come on. You know what I'm talking about. God, just take all this stuff they've done to us. They've defamed your name. You take care of business, Lord. You take care of how they've treated us and how they've defamed your name. God, would you do that? That's how they prayed. But listen to the second thing they prayed for. Look at, skip down to verse 9. After the physical uh, uh, opposition came, here's what they prayed in verse 9. And we pray to our God and ask, set a guard as protection against them day and night. What did they pray for? They prayed for protection. They prayed that God would do only what God could do. Protect Israel. Protect them from those enemies, right? So when they faced opposition, what's the first thing they did? They prayed. Here's the second thing they did. Not only did they pray, they prepared for battle. Skip with me over to verse 16. Skip over the, toward the end of the chapter. Verse 16. Here's what Nehemiah says. From that day on, half of the servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah. They prepared for battle. Not only did they pray, they got ready. Did you notice there it says that they got shields, they got spears, they got bows? I mean, they were ready for battle. Why? Because the enemies are coming against them physically. They're ready for battle. God is with us. God is for us. We're ready for battle. Do, you, do we live our life that way? I don't know about you, but here's something you got to know this morning. You're in a battle whether you like it or not. Ephesians 6 says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the rulers and the powers of this world. I mean, we are in a battle against the evil forces of Satan. We're in a battle. And every day we are to prepare for that battle. So how do we do that? Well, Ephesians 6 tells us you put on the armor of God. We've got to have the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and the feet of readiness. I mean, we've got to be prepared for battle. But how do they prepare? They gather all their arms up. And listen to this. And while half were working, half were watching. Did you get that? Half were working on the wall, and the other half are watching the enemies so they can tell the ones working what's coming ahead. Here's what's coming down the pike. So half are working and half are watching. And I ask, and I think to myself, okay, what does it mean for us as a church to prepare for the battle? How can we prepare for the battles that we face as a church and we face an individual? And here's a very simple answer. You ready? We pray. How can we watch out for other people? We pray. We intercede on their behalf. If I know Doug is going through some stuff over here and I know that he's facing opposition, one of the best ways that I can prepare is I can be Doug's watchman. I go, you know what? I'm going to be praying for him and praying that whatever's coming down the pike, that God would reveal it so I could warn my brother. So while he's living a life of purpose and he's living a life doing what God wants to do, someone's watching out for Doug. One of the best things we can do as believers is to pray for one another. I know that sounds so cliche, but that is so biblical. 
and we need to be watchmen for one another. So they prepared for battle, and one way they prepared was not only gathering up of their arms, but they were watchmen for one another. Half built, half watched. The third thing they did is they pledged to fight for one another. Look at me, verse 18 through 20. Do you remember a while ago when Nehemiah gave this big cheerleading spiel about, hey, let's all stand together, fight together, let's, let's do this? So look what happens in verse 18. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. And the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, and our God will fight for us. Now listen, they prayed first, they prepared for battle, and then they pledged to fight. See, listen, as we rebuild this wall, we're all going to be spread out, aren't we? Half are building, half are watching. Don't forget that. But when the enemy comes up, how are we going to let the rest of our people know that we're in battle? How are we going to let them know? We're going to blow a daggum trumpet, right? We're going to sound the alarm. And when you hear the alarm sound, here's what I want you to do. Just keep building, keep watching, right? Is that what he said? No, no, no. When you hear the alarm sound, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? Everybody is to come to the place where the alarm has been sounded. So in the moment that maybe one person, Randy Walker's on the wall, and Randy Walker's facing opposition because Don Jacobs is his watchman for him, and they're on the wall, and he's working hard. When he sounds the alarm that I'm going through some stuff, guess what? We all run to his side. We all run to his side. Listen, part of the way that we can pledge to fight for one another is by simply being present for one another. Listen, there are people in this room right now that have gone through some stuff. One in particular that's been on my heart that's gone through cancer and a lot of cancer. And they have allowed us the opportunity as individuals in the church to come stand beside them, to come walk a journey with them. And one of the best ways that we can pledge to fight for our brothers and sisters in Christ is just to simply be present there with them. Be present there with them and to be make sure that we're ready to fight their battle. When danger rises up, sound the alarm. Listen to me. For you know, There's too many of us. Listen, there's too many of us in this room today Too many of us that are too prideful. We don't want anybody else to know when the alarm needs to be sounded. We don't want, and most of you are men in the room. Can I just say that? Most of you are men in the room. We don't want anybody else to know when the alarm needs to be sounded. We got this, right? We can handle this, right? Well, you're the one that got you in the mess to begin with, probably. So you can't handle it. You don't have it. You need some help. That's why we have what's called the church. That's what the church is to be about. And so when we go through some stuff, it's important for us to sound the alarm and let other believers come alongside of us. I'm telling you this from personal experience in my life. I went through a season in my life probably about eight years ago that was one of the most difficult seasons in my life in ministry. I was ready to hang it up, ready to walk away. There's some things going on in my home. There's things going on in the church. But I had people that came alongside me and fought with me. They fought for me, and the whole time we're fighting, they also remind them that God's on your side too, Doug, that God's fighting with you too, that God is for you, he's with you, he's, he's before you, he's behind you, he's all around you, you are covered with our presence, and you're covered with the power of God in your life. Don't give up, and I'm telling you, I can stand here today and go, because of those people that God brought into my life, because I sounded the alarm, I swallowed my pride, and I sounded the alarm that I'm here today, and some of you have that same story. Listen, I, I, you said, Doug, why are you so excited about this? Because that's what the church is supposed to be. That's what the church is. If you believe that, say amen. amen. We are called to be here for one another, to be present in each other's lives. But there's one more thing that they did. They prayed. They prepared for battle. They pledged to fight for one another. And third thing, or the fourth thing they did is the people, they stayed vigilant. Look at me, verse 21 through 23. 
So, in other words, after all this has gone on, we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at the time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guards who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. In other words, despite all the opposition we faced, we never stopped. We never stopped. It was the purpose of God in our life that continued to be reinforced and who we are, what we're called to be, and we realized despite the opposition, the work still has to be done. And we never stopped. We committed, we pledged, we prepared, and we weren't going to stop. No matter what opposition came our way, we weren't stopping. We were committed to fulfill the purpose that God had put them there for. So here's a couple of questions I want you to think about this morning. Does God have a purpose for your life? Yes or no? Does God have a purpose for this church? And do we believe that if God has a purpose for you and God has a purpose for us, that we will face opposition? You believe I say yes. It's not if, it is when, right? So here's my question. If we know we're going to face opposition, is it possible that we need to respond the same way they responded? We pray. We prepare. We pledge. And we stay vigilant. Here's, here's my prayer this morning, this evening, or this morning, whatever it is. Here's my prayer. I have two challenges for us, and it's this. There may be somebody here this morning that you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I just want to ask you this morning, can I be your watchman? Can I be the person that tells you what's coming down the pike if you don't make that decision? See, the Bible says it's appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. One day you're going to stand before holy God. And if you never trusted Christ as your Savior, one day what's coming down the pike is an eternity apart from him. But if you want to know that you can have eternal life and spend eternity with him, it comes through surrender, surrendering your life to Christ, going, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that you died for me, and I want to surrender my life to you. And if you will do that, he will change your life, and he will change your eternity. Let me be your watchman this morning. And if you need to make that decision, would you just simply cry to him and pray that? Would you let us know by filling out a card or going online or talking to me? Because it's the biggest decision you ever make in your life. The second challenge I have for today is for the rest of us that are believers. Will you be a watchman for somebody? Come on, look at, everybody look at me. Will you be a watchman for somebody? Someone who's, who's calling down prayers from heaven and thoughts from heaven on behalf of somebody else. Someone who's totally going after the Lord and pursuing the Lord and interceding for someone. Will you be a watchman for somebody else? In fact, I'm so burdened that we're going to do that, that, to do that, is that right here on this table, there's a list of every family in this church. In fact, if you've been a family that's visited within the last two weeks, you're on this table. You may not even be a member. So every family, not every person, but every family. And what I want us to do as a church, here's our invitation this morning, is I want us to commit to be watchmen for other people. So I just grabbed, I don't know who grabbed. Okay, I grabbed the Tucker family. So Steve and Debbie, I'm your watchman for the next 35 days. In 35 days, we will wrap up the Nehemiah series on March 28th. And so for 35 days, I'm going to pray earnestly for Steve and Debbie Tucker. Now, I don't want you coming around here going, I want to pick the people I like. No, 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 no. You're just going to come by in a minute and you grab a name. All right, don't be looking. Okay, so just grab a name like I just did. And here's what we're going to pray for. Here's what we're going to pray for Steve and Debbie. I'm going to pray that they would be continue to be reminded of their identity in Christ. It's on the card. That they would continue to be an agent of light of Christ wherever they go. That they would have strength in the face of opposition. That I would be their watchman going, God, as, as the enemy come against them, would you give them the strength that can only come from the throne of God? And then I'm going to pray for opportunities 
to share their faith in Christ. This is how for the next 35 days, I'm going to pray for Stephen Debbie every single day. Because if I pray these prayers, what am I praying? I'm praying that God would build in them a sense of identity, a sense of purpose, and a sense of mission in their life, right? And then, oh, by the way, on the backside, here's how you can pray for our church the next 35 days. You can pray for our church that, that God's will be done, not ours. You can pray for the leadership of our church, the land surveying, the rezoning, the kingdom of focus, that we'd be agents light, our community, our protection from the enemy, and how we can better love God and love people. For the next 35 days, this is what I want us to pray. So here's our invitation. If you'll be a watchman for somebody else, I'm going to pray for us. And as I say amen, would you come up without looking and just grab one of these cards and say you pick up the tuckers like I did. Okay, this is my family for the next 35 days. Now, you may say, well, I don't know those people. Great. What a great time for me to give you an introduction, right? A great time for me to go, hey, hey, Craig and Jill, this is this family over here that you need to know that, that you're a watchman for. So do you understand what I'm asking today? I'm asking you if you will make a commitment to being a watchman for somebody else, that you'll grab this family for 35 days and every day pray for them. And let's just see what God does in the life of our church for the next 35 days. You believe, if you believe God can do some great things, I sure do. Let's, let's all stand together as we pray. Everybody stand with me if you would. Everybody stand, every head bowed, every eye closed. Yeah, I'm going to ask you if you would in just a moment after I pray. If you want to grab one per family, and here's the only thing. After everybody's come through that wants to come through, and there's more cards on here, I don't want them left. So maybe you want to come grab another one. Maybe there's another family. And so, so let's start out one per family if you would. And then as we see the cards left over after we're done today, would you please come and grab the rest of them? These families, listen, we all need watchmen in our lives. Amen? Amen? We all need them. And you need to be one for somebody else too. Let's pray. God, I love you. I thank you for today. I thank you for this story. I, I'm blown away as I look at the opposition Israel faced. God, I think most of us, if we were honest, we would have retreated. With the verbal oppositions, we might have stood a little bit. With the physical opposition, I know I would have retreated. And then with the eternal opposition, man, that would have brought confusion and doubt and uncertainty. But God, I thank you for Israel. I thank you that while they struggled internally, this might be one of the few moments in their history they did what they were supposed to do. They prayed. They prepared. They pledged. And they stayed focused on the purpose you had for them. And God, I pray that that would be what we do this morning. That we would realize if we really believe that you have a purpose for us as a church, individuals, if we really believe we will face opposition, Lord, I pray that as believers we would make the commitment to be a watchman for somebody else. That we would grab these people's names and that we would lift them up to you every day. That we'd lift them up to the throne every day. And asking you to do the things that we've listed on this card. To confirm their identity in you. To remind them of that to give them opportunities to share their faith, to show them and, and encourage them and give them opportunities to be the light of Christ wherever they go. God, I pray as a church this morning that this would change the culture of our church, that we would be mindful, not just praying for ourselves, but for praying for other people, that you would intervene, that you would protect, that you would guide, that you would nurture, that you would grow, that you would make a difference in their life. We're praying for other people today, Lord. So God, I just ask people that we would be, if they would be watchmen, and may you guide us to do that. Lord, we love you. We thank you for how good you are to us. We thank you for your grace. We can all say there's been a story in our life somewhere that if it hadn't been for other people intervening, stepping in, loving us, being present, and caring for us, 
we could have gone to a really bad place. But you always provide at just the right time. So God, today, may there be a church filled full of watchmen as we watch over one another. God, we love you. Be with us. Bless this time. For it's in your precious and your holy son's name we pray. Amen and amen. And listen, as you feel led, for 35 days, just come grab a card and say, I'm gonna, we're going to be watchmen for this person, this family, for the next 35 days. So as you feel led, you come to the table.